We're going to go ahead and open in prayer as we get ready for the message. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you in, in the song. And now, Lord, as we open your word and worship you in the presentation of your word and your message, we thank you for that. Guide and lead and anoint in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, we're going to take a short detour from Colossians because this is Passion Week. And if you haven't heard that term before, this is the week that represents the last week of Jesus' life, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which they say was Sunday, but really wasn't Sunday, but we'll go really where that's at. But the Passion Week is that last week of life as he went into his crucifixion and then his resurrection. And we're just going to take a short time. I was struggling with what part of Passion Week I wanted to talk to, because I figured you all didn't want to be here for three days for me to talk about the entire Passion Week. So we uh, figured we'll just break one part of it out. Um, but the, the Passion Week is, in the scriptures and the Gospels, represents one-third of the entire Gospel presentation to us is about his last week of his life. And that's, just, that's of all three, uh, all four Gospels. So it represents one-third. So the apostles and the disciples obviously thought that this week was an important week. The week starts out with him entering into Jerusalem on the, on the donkey. And we've talked about that at various times, that riding in on the donkey represented a king coming in peace to, and declaring himself to be king. Uh, if the king came in on a, on a charger, a white charger, or a black horse, he was saying, I'm coming in as a conqueror. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king, announcing he was king. They put down the palm leaves. That's why we usually have Palm Sunday a lot of times. Uh, put down their cloaks, call, crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. So if you ever use the term Hosanna or you hear it in our songs, that means save now. And they were, rec they were recognizing him as the Messiah and as king. And that's why later on when he talks to Pilate and Pilate says, are you a king? He goes, well, I am, but if I, if I was of this world, my followers would rise up to fight. And we, he didn't spend the entire week doing all kinds of things that really got the scribes and Pharisees upset with him. <laughs> he kicked them out of the temple for the second time for selling and trading in the temple and said, you're not going to make my father's house a, a den of thieves. Uh, this was the period where he did all kinds of miracles and was, was tempted and... and, and uh, by the, by the scribes and Pharisees, gave answers to questions that they never thought he'd be able to answer. And we're just giving you a little bit of history as we get ready for this one section I picked out. And then he has the Last Supper with his disciples, which wasn't Passover. It was a Galilean celebration before Passover because he's going to die as the Passover lamb and be in the grave on Passover. And you know, just as a side note, do you realize this year we're actually celebrating Resurrection Sunday on the right day? <laughs> Passover is Friday, <laughs> okay? And first fruits, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, is the following Sunday after Passover. So we are, we are actually celebrating his resurrection this year on the correct day, which is very unusual the way we, we, way we calculate our calendars because usually we celebrate this awful word, and you all know I hate it, Easter, <laughs> okay? I hate the term Easter because Easter is the celebration of the goddess Estar, which is a fertility goddess. And so I'm not a very big fan of the word Easter. We celebrate, you know, our Resurrection Sunday on the celebration of the fertility goddess, and it bugs me, <laughs> uh, which is why you'll note that I almost always will say Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> uh, but this will give you the reason why, <laughs> if you haven't heard that before. 
And so we're looking here in the story, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, excuse me, 14 to start with. And Jesus has this last supper with his disciples. He blesses the bread and says, this represents my body that's going to be broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Then they leave the upper room, and they go to Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he starts his prayer, and he says, Father, if there's a, you know, uh, take this cup from me, and we've talked many times about what I believe that is, and we're not going to do that this morning. Uh, because, like I said, I could talk to you all day on this, on this topic. This is the central theme of the gospel message. Why did Jesus come and live for 34 years on this world? So that he could die on that cross for our sins. And we would have had to start weeks ago to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, and, get, and we still wouldn't get everything in. And you all know that it takes me forever to get through a book, so you know that it's... Uh, uh, not something I can do easily. So he goes to Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot has sold him to the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, for 20 pieces of silver. And he goes up to him, he gives him a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they drag him away for his trial. And we're going to look just a little bit at his trial th this morning and the consequences of that in, in verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And Peter followed afar off, even to the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priest and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but the witnesses agreed not together. And there arose certain and certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say he will destroy this temple and that is made but with hands, and within three days I will build up another without hands. But neither so did they witness or agree together. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answer you nothing? What is this which these witness against you? But he held his peace and answered him nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said, you, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, what need, what need we of any further witness? We have heard the blasphemy. What think you? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and buffet him and say to them, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. The trial of Jesus is a, basically, we in our day would call it a kangaroo court. They had arrested him. They had already predetermined his sentence. And there's some points I want to bring out as we look at this, look at this uh, trial. Uh, the first one I want to bring out is, and it doesn't say this in the scripture, but according to their tradition, you could not try a capital offense at night. Jesus was arrested at night. And if we go further in the story, he's not taken to Pilate until that next morning, so this whole capital crime was tried at night. You, and even as in today, you don't look for your witnesses after you arrest the person. <laughs> okay? And if you, you see this in the, in the story, it said, uh, and the chief priest in the council in verse 55 sought for, sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Okay? Even in our day, we have the same rule. You don't arrest somebody until you have your case. At least you think you have your case in order, that was their rule. You had to have the case in order before you brought him to court. 
everything about the trial of Jesus is incorrect, even, even by their rules. And so we're just looking at this, you know, how many times have you thought, Jesus doesn't understand what I go through? You know, you all know, I work at the prison, I hear it all the time. You know, uh, I had a bad trial, and I go, you know what, Jesus had a bad trial too. <laughs> I, like, I like to preach to these guys. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Jesus had a bad, what do you mean? I go, he had a kangaroo court. They had already made up the case, and I'll, if I had the Bible, I'll read it. If not, I'll just tell them the story about this. You know, Jesus knows what we go through. And we said it over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun here. The judicial system was just as broken back in those days as it is now. Politicians were just as corrupt as they are, are now. And we always tend to think of all the stuff we're going through as brand new. It's fun reading the Bible and saying, wow, you know, they, they, bought, the, they bought testimony. They, they were bribed. They, this happened. You know, all the corruption happened. This case with Jesus, they had arrested him. They already had determined that he was guilty, and they couldn't find the witnesses. <laughs> All right. The next step says that the few witnesses they got wouldn't agree. All right. And we know in our day and age that that's true. You have to have your witnesses agree somewhat. <laughs> and here they couldn't even get to the one place that they did say, because we heard him say he'd destroy the temple and raise it up again. Well, Jesus did say that, he, that it, that would happen, but he was referring to his body. And even on that one statement, they couldn't find witnesses that would agree. Not that they could have executed him for that statement, but you know, they couldn't find witnesses to agree. Now that point is put in all the Gospels and it's put there for a very strong reason. In the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it tells you that if you don't have two witnesses that agree in their testimony, you could not execute somebody. All right, so this point is put in here. They couldn't get anybody to agree on their testimony. So they did not have grounds for execution. So we look at that as another problem that we have. And said so the high priest tried to make Jesus speak against himself. In the Jewish law, you could not force somebody to witness against themselves. Does that sound a little familiar? Our judicial system is based upon the biblical standards of things. Uh, you know, they found witnesses that were committing perjury against Jesus, and do you understand what the, per the penalty for perjury was according to the, for the Jews? Whatever the trial was about, and whatever you were trying to get that person convicted of, if you perjured yourself, you got their punishment. So on a capital case, if you perjured yourself on a capital case, you were executed instead of, the, instead of that person. And if you want to read that, that's in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through, tw uh, uh, through 21. So this is a serious thing. They're, they're paying people to, you know, they're grabbing all these people to, to lie about Jesus, which is a pretty serious thing because if they're going to follow through with the rules, they're going to have to kill those individuals who lied on the stand. Perjury was a big deal to God. And... You know, for us, it's just a slap on the wrist anymore for perjury. That's one place where we didn't get it right in our judicial system. But we look at this. They bring these people to try to blame Jesus. They, they call them in, and they bring the whole, the whole crowd of them in for a night trial, for a capital offense, no witnesses, <laughs> you know, no case against him. And we see the anger in the high priest. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, 
Answer you nothing? What are these things they witness against you? Yeah. The high priest is supposed to be the, the chief justice of that group. He's not even supposed to be actively involved. He is supposed to be trying to get to the truth. And you can almost hear his anger in this statement. You know, we, you've got all these witnesses against you who none of them agree. Well, you know, are you going to answer them? <laughs> you know, none of these guys have witnessed against you, and you can hear them just, you know, say something so, we can, so that we can hang you, basically. And Jesus has been silent. Just as it said in Isaiah 53 that he would, he went to this as a lamb before its shears, you know, silent. He went quietly. Then the high priest asks him straight up, and in Mark it doesn't tell us this, it says, but in the other scriptures it says, he said, I adjure you by the most high, okay? In other words, I'm putting you under oath to God. Are you the son of God? And that's the only time Jesus answered the high priest and said, I am. I am. Now, many people, if you witness to enough people, they'll all tell you, well, Jesus never said that he was God. And you know what? It is true that he never said the words, I am God. But he said he was God. Right here, he said, I am. When he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and they go, you know, our father is Abraham. And they go, well, if you really were his children, you would obey him. And he goes, before Abraham was, I am and what was the result of that statement? They picked up rocks to stone him because they understood that he had just said, I am God. All right? Uh, all through the scriptures of the New Testament, he says these same terms, I am. Before something happened, I was there. I knew these people before. And this is one of the wonderful things when we're studying the Old Testament and reading the Old Testament. And all the times we see Jesus appear in the Old Testament, you know, it's great. You have, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham and told him that they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He prepared an offering and worshipped the angel. Now, if the angel of the Lord is worshipped, it's Jesus. If they bow down to worship an angel, the angel will always say, Get up, I am a servant just like you. Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord and asked him his name. And he says, why are you asking my name? And he changed Jacob's name to Israel. The angel of the Lord, he wrestled with Jesus. Abraham gave an offering to Melchizedek, which many people, including myself, believe was Jesus Christ before his incarnation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he sent Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the fiery furnace, he goes, didn't we put three people in? There's a fourth one in there. Jesus. You know, we see Jesus all through the scriptures. Then we see him in the poetic part of it because when you look at the tabernacle, and we've, we spent a long time teaching the tabernacle when we were going through the book of Exodus, and the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus completely. And if you want to find that, go back into the Exodus series and read, listen to those messages. But it talked about his blood, his mercy, his forgiveness. We see Jesus. Jesus, before the foundation of the earth, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together before they started anything, said, we're going to create the world. We're going to create these men with free, free moral agencies. They're going to sin, and Jesus, would you die for their sin? And Jesus said, yes. He was sacrificed before we even sinned in the Father's eyes. 
This is just the finalizing of it. Come into this world to be finalized. It's an amazing thing when we think about this. I've always shared with you, I don't know why God even created us knowing we were going to sin. When man sinned, it was not a surprise to God. He did not say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? They fell. He already knew that they were going to fall. How do we know that? Because as soon as he's talking to Eve, he says, you shall give birth to the child who shall crush the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise his heel. The plan had already been put in place because God knows everything. And we've got to remember, how big is God? And I've shared with you, no matter how big you think he is, you're too small. No matter how strong you think he is, you got him too weak. No matter how much you think he knows, you're, you're too low. One thing I have learned over many years of studying the scripture is every time I think I know something, God shows me a little deeper knowledge on it. And my knowledge is a lot deeper than most people's, and I still don't know anything. And this is the thing we want to keep in mind. This is a study. This is a book that will keep us busy for the rest of our lives, <clears throat> no matter what time you start. I was fortunate. I started studying at 10 years old. So I got a good head start on a lot of people. But I still don't know very much about God. I don't know much about his grace. And yet I love his grace. And you all know that I love his grace. To be able to give people grace. Do you realize that the greatest growth that we'll ever have is because of his grace? Yeah. And I've shared this. So many of us, you know, have been in churches for a long time know that they like to give us the rules and the laws. And I've shared with you, if you're like me, give me a bunch of rules and I just instinctively want to violate the rules. That doesn't mean the rules are bad. It doesn't mean that they're not good for us. But our sinful flesh wants to violate rules. That's what we are. Which is why in Galatians 2.20, God says we are to be crucified with Christ or I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He wants to crucify our flesh, and when he crucifies our flesh, then we can start living the way he wants because he's crucified our flesh, he's given us a new spirit, he lives in us, and he comes out of us. And it's not me trying to be good, it's not me trying to do good works, it's him living out. But we come back to this, he comes in and he says, at this time he says, I am. And a high priest rips his robe, which is another thing that he was never supposed to do because he's supposed to be the impassionate uh, judge. And he says, what further need have we of witnesses? Now, he still has, by Jewish law, one problem. He has only one witness. <laughs> okay? And that's Jesus himself. He still can't execute him legally because he still only has one witness. And yet, they find him guilty. They wanted to find him guilty, and they did find him guilty because that's what they had fully desired. And the thing that they're going to charge him with in their court is blasphemy. Okay, He says he is God. They charged him with blasphemy. We're going to jump in a little bit here to, to Mark 15, verse 1. And straightway in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him unto Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, You say it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answer you the other thing? Behold how many things they witness against you. But Jesus yet answered 
nothing so that Pilate marveled. Pilate is going to have the case. Why does Pilate have to have this case? Well, because the Jews are a vassal state to Rome, and they are not allowed to execute anybody. <laughs> All right? They have found him guilty of a capital crime by Jewish law. They take him into Pilate, and you see what Pilate's asking him is not, are you God? Are you the king of the Jews? When they took him to Pilate, as you read the other Gospels, they charge him to Pilate with sedition, going against Rome. Now, now if you ever think about this, they had the same rule. They took him on one found him guilty on one charge, took him to another car court, and made up a whole new charge. And said, you know, he, he says he's king. That wasn't what they tried him for. That is not what they were running him executed for. Why did they do this? Well, you've got to think, Pilate is a Roman citizen. Pilate isn't going to care at all if he said he was God. He's got a whole pantheon of gods. He's got all kinds of people running around saying they're God. Caesar says he's God. All these other nations say the leader that say they're God. You know, every once in a while you get somebody that says they have an exceptional birth and they're born of a God and they're half a God. You know, so for Pilate, if they had come and said he, he says he's God, Pilate would have laughed at him. You know, so what is that to me? What do they bring him up on charges? He's against you. He's the king of the Jews. We think about this. We see, you know, when we look at this, we see almost a hilarious comedy of errors when they bring this to him. You know, Pilate is going to try him, and he's going to say, I find him innocent. What do you want me to do with him? And they say, crucify him. And they go, why? What does he do? And they yell, crucify him in, in the book of Matthew. And they egg this crowd up to, to want Jesus dead. And Pilate, in a wonderful politician's way, gives in to the crowd. And that's why I say, you know, politicians are no different than they were today than they were years ago. Why did he give in to the crowd? Well, because Caesar had already told him that if he had one more riot in Jerusalem, he was going to lose his, lose his position. So he was kind of in a rock and a hard place, too, because he's got the crowd demanding Jesus' blood. He, he knows that Jesus is innocent. And if he has a riot... He is going to be recalled, at best, recalled back to Rome and lose his position. At worst, be assigned out to whatever the equivalent of the Russian front for the Germans would have been for him. You know, he'd have been sent out to fight the Gauls or sent to Scotland you know, to fight the uh, fight up there. He'd been sent out to the furthest area, and he'd never be recognized again. So he relents and has Jesus killed. And we see this all the time. And many times people will go, who put Jesus on the cross? And they'll point to the Jews and say that it was their kangaroo court, and yes, they had a part in it. They'll point to the Romans and say, you know, Pilate should have stopped it, and yes, he should have. It was the Romans that helped put him on there. We all, with our sin, put him on the cross as well. But you know, ultimately, the Father put him on the cross. He was born with the intent of going to the cross, he knew he was going to the cross. That was why he was born. He knew that he was going to the cross even before they, cre before they created man in the world. For 6,000 years up to that, uh, 4,000 years up to the point when he was born, he knew he was going to the cross. And he went to the cross. And the Father put him there. And it said the Father was pleased to put him there. And that's hard for us to understand, but the Father knew what it took to redeem us.
We cannot do good and get to heaven. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You know, no matter what we do, one sin will send us to hell. And I don't know about anybody else. Actually, I do know everybody else in this room. But none of us sitting in this room have had just one sin in our lifetime. Most of us haven't even had one sin in, in a week or a day. You know, much less an hour or a minute. We deserve the punishment that God says is going to be there. Jesus died for our sin. So that all we have to do is accept that gift of his death to be washed in the blood of Christ and be able to stand before God and he looks at us as a perfect child because we accept that sacrifice. Yeah. And the sad thing is, when you talk to people about Jesus all the time and you witness to people and they're going, well, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. And I go, well, I have bad news for you. And they go, what is that? And I go, you're not. They go, you don't know me. I go, I don't need to. I know that you've committed at least one sin in your life. One sin sends us to hell. And we go, well, that's not fair. Well, God's standard is perfection. When we stand before him, he's going to say, are you perfect? If you're a Christian, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has washed you in his blood, put you into his body, and when you stand before the Father, he looks down at you and says, oh yeah, here's my perfect child, come on in. If you are not washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to stand there in your own righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is filthy rags. And I can just picture people up there, God, just take a look at all these good clothes I have on. <laughs> you know, I, I had good deeds, God. Where, where are they? And God says, they're filthy rags. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They're going to go to hell because they're not perfect. Not even for the sin, but that their good deeds are not good enough to get them into heaven. We can have a whole pile of good deeds. We can do more good than bad and still end up in hell. Hell is going to be filled with a lot of good people in it. And this is another secret you might want to know. Heaven's going to be filled with a lot of bad people. <laughs> because it's Jesus Christ's blood that gets us there. But hell is going to be filled with a lot of people who think they're good. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They'll feed you. They'll give you anything. They'll make you, you know, if you looked at them, you go, surely they're a Christian. Look at all the good things they're doing. And God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. If good deeds would get us to heaven, Jesus wasted his time coming to this world to die for us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive statement that does not fit well in today's world, but Jesus said it because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Doesn't matter how much good I do or even how much bad I do, it's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to be beat after this. They're going to put the crown of thorns on his head. And when we, we've talked about this, the crown of thorns aren't little tiny thorns. They're inch and a half, two inch thick thorns that they pound into his, into his head. They scourged him with a Roman flagellum. And we've talked about the flagellum. It has seven to 11 cords of leather weighted with rock and glass and thorns and whatever else they can do to make it and they would tear the skin and rip the skin. He took the beating that we deserved for our sins. Then they put him on the cross after they scourged him. And, 
you know, we, we think about the beatings and everything, and, you know, if you've ever seen The Passion on the Christ, you know, when that movie came out and they made a great big deal out of it, how, how bad it was and how awful it was, I went thinking I was going to see the actual picture of what he went through. And yes, it was a bloody, vicious movie in many ways, but it was nothing compared to what he went through. And I'm not going to go deeper into that, but remember I've said these, these Roman soldiers, as they were using the flagellum, would, take, would laugh with each other and take bets on who could get the largest chunk of skin out of the, out of the victim. You know, this was a game for them. This was not something they looked at and said, uh, well, we're going to be as kind as we can. They were evil in their pr pr work on it, and they took pleasure in beating him. And then they took him to the cross and nailed him to this cross. Nailed him to the cross for us. He was put on the cross and died within hours when he took on the sin of the world, and we've talked about this here at various times, he's been beat, he's been nailed to a cross, he becomes sin, and the father turns his back on his son. The f one and only time in all of eternity that Jesus was separated from the father. What was the real pain that he went through for us? the separation of the Father. We can't even begin to understand how hard that separation was. At best, it would be somebody who's lived some, with somebody for 50, 60 years and has them pass away and the emptiness they feel in their heart. And most of us haven't lived that long and had that experience yet. The next closest thing might be that first love that you ever had where you fell deeply and passionately in infatuation with somebody, and then you broke up and you pined away for, for weeks, or, you know, weeks or months after that. And he, both of those examples are nothing compared to what Jesus went through when the Father turned his back. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First time ever to be separated from the Father. What was the ultimate that he paid for us? It wasn't the beating, it wasn't the cross, it was the separation of the Father. And he went there willingly. It's always amazed me that he went there willingly. His love for us, even in this room and those that are listening on the internet, his love for us held him to that cross. And I was doing the Matthew class. I told him, I can picture the angels in heaven, you know, looking at the Father, like, when are you going to let us go? You're letting these little pipsqueaks on the earth do this to your son? When are you going to let us go? And I could see them, you know, just, okay, God, we're ready. We're, we're ready to destroy the whole world for this. And the father let him die. The angels didn't understand what was going on at all. And Jesus died, and then he was raised again in victory. But for us today, if you don't know Jesus, today is the day to make a decision for him. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're not guaranteed to live another week. You're not guaranteed to live another hour. Don't put off getting to know him because today is that day. How do you do that? You just tell God, God, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I accept your sacrifice. Come and live in me. And any version of that prayer works. <laughs> and we want to be able to share that. If you don't know him, today is the day to know him. We sang some songs about him being alive and how he is the one that makes us happy. 
And, you know, I've shared with a lot of people that go, you know, I know that God is real. You know, they go, well, how do you know? I go, because he gives me blessings. He walks with me. He talks with me. I have a great relationship with him. You know, and sometimes I'll even go, well, what if you're wrong? And I go, I've, I've lost nothing. If it's not true that there's a heaven after this world, I have lost nothing. I have lived a very pleasant life that's been blessed. But that blessed life tells me that he is telling me the truth about the eternity. You know, and sometimes I get it when I first ask them what if they're wrong. But if they, if, I, if they initiate it, I'll ask them what if you're wrong. What do you have to look forward to if, if you're wrong? I've usually initiated it, and I'm all ready to answer them because I know. I know that I know Jesus. I know that I walk with him. I know he talks with me through his word. I know that he has directed me in my life in what to do and what not to do. There's been two occasions where I almost swear that I heard a voice, but not, I wouldn't actually say it was a voice, but it was definitely in my head that I heard God. Other times that I just know that he, what he wants me to do. But you know, the word is, whatever you, you think God's telling you to do must match up with the word. If you come up and you tell me God wants you to do something that's not in accordance with the scripture, I'm going to tell you you didn't hear from God. Not even a question in my mind that you didn't hear from God. If it doesn't match up to what he says in the Bible, you did not hear from him. But today, if you don't know him, commit to him. For those of you who do know him, make him Lord. Make him the Lord of your life and start asking him, what is it you want me to do, God? Because he wants to be our Savior, but he wants to be Lord. And what is a Lord? we said this many times. Here in America, we really don't understand the term Lord and King. We don't like our leaders. We vote them out. <laughs> you know, we're one of the few places in the world that can actually do that. There's a few more nowadays, but even then, a lot of times, they only have one candidate running. So they really don't have an election. They just uh, have a, you know, elect the one person running. But you know, God is looking to establish a monarchy. Heaven is going to be a monarchy. God is in charge. <laughs> Nobody else. You're never going to be able to vote God out of office. We need to learn to start making him Lord here. What is it he asks us to do? The Bible is full of commands. <laughs> now, most of his commands we read as suggestions. You know, including the Ten Commandments, we read those as suggestions. <laughs> uh, God is not making suggestions to us. Again, are we bound by those rules? No, we're not bound by those rules. We're not going to heaven because we're obeying those rules. But there are consequences for disobeying those rules. So if you want to live in the bad consequences of disobeying, keep disobeying his rules. If you want to be blessed or have good consequences, <laughs> obey his rules. Not so you earn heaven, not so you can even please God, but just that you can have a good life on this world. And we're going to bow our heads and pray and and we'll sing a couple more songs, but Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us, guide us, teach us. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message that doesn't know you, I pray that they will come to you. They will admit that they're a sinner and turn their life over to you and become your servant. Make you Lord and Master. And Lord, for those in us that know you, help us to make you more and more ruler of our life and of our heart. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.